want to tell us your name? I'm Michelle Granger. <laughs> and how'd you get here? How'd you? How'd I come to Boulder? How'd I get to know you? How Boulder? Well, I met my hus my now husband, um, before I lived here. I lived in Oregon, and he had lived in Boulder in the '80s, mid '80s. And when I met him, I was in Oregon and he was in California. And I said, well, I didn't want to live in California. That's what she's And we understand. I don't know, you know. And I always wanted to live in Colorado. And I was bike racing at the time. And it was kind of like the place to go and be and live that kind of lifestyle and not have it kind of an odd thing. And since we both He'd lived here, and we both kind of wanted to do the outdoor kind of thing. So we came here. Cool. And that was a long time ago. And could you tell us about the journey to Paris and kind of the idea for that, how that all got started? Yep. And maybe, I mean, you say you're a bike racer, but talk about the kind of bike racing you do, because that's pretty incredible. Well, I was a bike racer for 20 years, so kind of a long time, good genetics. And I've also been a coach for a long time, so if you mix science and knowing tricks, good tricks and genetics, then you can race for a long time. Um, and I have really good endurance genes. So after I started kind of my racing career doing ultra distance cycling, then I switched and went back to what, nor you know, what almost anybody would say bike racing was, you know, hour events, two and a half hour events, three hour events, stage racing, that kind of stuff. Um, I also then switched to mountain biking which I really, really loved, and did the traditional, back then it was Norba, now it's USA Cycling, and missed the ultra-distance aspect, and got into, when I was mountain bike racing, I got kind of bored with the three-hour and two-hour races, and asked my sponsors, I found out about a 100-mile race that I wanted to go do, that was the first year Leadville was, came about. Which year was that? The late 90s. Okay. I don't know. Uh, that was yeah, maybe 97, 98. So a friend called up and I said, oh, that sounds so much better than going to Mammoth and doing a two-hour bike race. <laughs> Let's miles. go do it. <laughs> and um, started doing that. I think there was one other in Oregon. There was a 100-mile mountain bike race. And then it just kind of blossomed from there into 24-hour mountain bike racing. And I got to travel all over the world doing mountain bike stage racing and 24-hour racing and 100-mile racing and probably finished the last 10 years, eight or 10 years of my career doing that and having just a really, really good time doing it. And so living in Boulder kind of fit that personality and lifestyle, really. Do you have any thoughts on the, just the community here or what, what made it work? Um, I mean, it sounds like they were just open to mountain biking to where it wasn't weird well, like I, it was. But. Yeah, I, because I think you can... I think there's two different sides to Boulder. To me, there's always been a pretentious side of Boulder that I've never liked. Um, coming from Oregon, I found it really hard to meet people here. I think, and maybe that was my self-absorption in racing, because it is self-absorbing. Um, I always found it to be, when I was getting out of mountain bike racing or racing, I found it, I kind of looked at the last 20 years and went, wow, I've kind of been selfish because that's been everything I've done, and it requires you to be quite selfish. And um, 
And so maybe it wasn't really Boulder. It seems like I've met more of an eclectic and a mix of people now that I'm not racing. So maybe my life is more balanced, which is probably a good thing. But um, I studied geography for a long time. So Colorado kind of fits a geographic social aspect of miners and self-absorbed kind of staying in your own little world, just staking your claim kind of thing. And coming from Oregon, um, where I just thought everybody was very, very open. And I'm not saying they aren't here, but I think there's two sides to Boulder. And maybe it's me. I mean, I think I'm not saying it's not me. Maybe I haven't looked outside of my own world kind of thing, but maybe that's what we do. But it, it is, you can kind of be who you want to be in Boulder, and, and it kind of fits. And being an athlete, nobody thinks twice. We used to make jokes that people would shake your hand and say, what category are you, instead of, what do you do in the world, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I don't know, as an aging, being part of the tail end of the baby boomers, maybe that won't be a good thing soon, I don't know, kind of thing. But... Uh, the road to Paris. So I've been a coach almost as long as I was a bike racer, and obviously now longer a coach for cycling. And um, there's these events that are part of this world of cycling called randonneuring. And it's a self-supported sport, ultra-endurance self-supported sport uh, with a kind of, kind of a camaraderie. You're not supposed to be a racer, but they're timed events. They're kind of like rally car racing or something where you have you have an event that's however long, 100 kilometers. They're all in kilometers because it's rich in history out of France and been around longer than the Tour de France. And it's a self-sufficient way to meander along the road kind of thing. And it's full of kind of rules, but that are rich in tradition kind of thing, which is why it's a timed event, which coming from a racing world, I'm like, that's a bike race then. <laughs> but it's not a bike race. It's a gentleman's timed event, so you're not lollygagging out there, I guess, but with a very wide uh, range of timing. And there's controls. So you might have a 125-mile event and you've got four or five stops along the way, which are controls, and you have to get a card checked to prove you were there. So some of it is the tradition, and then some of it is to prove that you didn't cut a route, that kind of thing. And so I always, I've been coaching a lot of people to go to this event that's in France. It's called Paris, Brest Paris. And it's 1,200 kilometers long, which is six, you could kind of do six times 12, so roughly 700 miles. Um, and it goes from Paris to Brest and back. And it only comes every four years. And Americans, I think Americans really started to do it in the late 80s, kind of thing. And people from all over the world can go, but you have to qualify. And you also can't be a professional bike racer. So I always knew while I was racing I couldn't do it, but I kept coaching people to do it. And, that, and then my husband, his family is, lives in Brittany, which is the whole part of where this event is. And so we always said, well, well, we'll do it when you stop bike racing. So I stopped bike racing in uh, the mid-2000, 2007-ish, about that time. And that year they had an event. So then we decided we would start 
getting into these events in turn for 2011. And at first our times were really, really fast because we were just coming off of the racing scene. And it was a really hard concept to switch from, what do you mean you just go from, you don't go from point A to point B as fast as you can and then turn around and come back. So we had to really learn to slow down, temper our pacing, be a little more gentleman-like or gentlewoman-like, and carry, take our bikes and put a lot of gear on our bikes. I'd come off of a lot of 24-hour racing where I had crews that were, you know, I just carried what I needed maybe for 20 miles and then had a pit crew or something. So this is really different. We had to carry all of our own stuff for however long the event is, anywhere from 125 miles to 700 miles. And these are timed events. And they, they're all in kilometers, so it's the traditional ones are 200 kilometers, 300 kilometers, 400 kilometers, and 600 kilometers, and then 1,000 kilometers, and then usually the jump, then to 1,200. And so there was a, a really, it was a sizable learning curve for us to carry, to kind of, basically what you're doing is you're taking your bike and turning it into kind of like a, a credit card touring bike kind of thing. You're, you're adding another five to seven pounds to your bike, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. And so we got, we started getting into it and looking at, there's a, there's a, a whole realm of different events. Anything from just doing um, a 63 or four mile, which is a 100K event, where you have a lot of people usually, because you only have two stops and it's a short day for people kind of thing all the way up to the, the 600 kilometer events and that kind of stuff. That's 375 miles. So this concept of the road to Paris hadn't really, I hadn't thought about it yet, except for um, I really wanted to do this, this event in Paris. And in 2008, we started doing a few of these events and still mountain biking and that kind of stuff. And then in 2009, we were really gearing up for, we're going to do a whole series, it's called an SR series, uh, which is a two, a three, a four, and a 600 kilometer event, and really get into this. And we kind of toyed with the idea of trying to see if I could break the women's record, even though it's not a race, they, it's a timed event, so they post times. And because we were starting to post some really good times in some of our events, and then on a training ride, riding through Boulder, I was hit by a truck. Oh my God. And everything changed. My whole life changed actually. And really what happened as I was getting hit, my brain kind of split and I got immediate PTSD, like immediate. And so I kind of became a soldier and had some people get me off the road and I decided I was fine. Everything was fine. So when the ambulance got there and the fire trucks and everybody got there, I said I was fine. You know, I had chunks of skin out and really bad injuries. I was fine. I signed a waiver saying I wouldn't go in the, go to the hospital. I was fine. And that's, and I stuck to it. And, um, at some point, I think it was one of the ambulance EMTs said, you really should go to the hospital because you've got a lot of adrenaline right now. 
you don't know what's happened. So I agreed, fine, okay. And so I went to the ER room, but I really stuck to the I'm fine until I couldn't breathe because I'd broken some ribs or the truck had broken some ribs. And the unfortunate part is that I soldiered on as if I was perfect. A lot of things were not caught. A lot of injuries that were quite severe um, weren't taken care of. And I think part of it was I just kept saying I was fine. I even went home and emailed my family and said, I'm fine, I got hit by a truck today, but I'm fine. I just kept saying I'm fine. The next morning I'd go back to the ER because I couldn't turn my neck. So all these little things were happening. Within six months, I was sleeping an hour a night. I was having panic attacks all the time. Um, but I kept training because I'm fine. I can get over this. I will get over this. And even I knew that I wasn't so fine. But I kept saying, well, it makes sense that I'm not fine because I'm only sleeping an hour a night and I'm having panic attacks all the time. And I'm hearing voices. No wonder, you know, <laughs> your brain can't go on no sleep. So basically, my world, as much as I was pretending it was fine to everybody else around me, it wasn't fine and it wasn't even close to fine. And a lot of injuries that people thought were sprains were ligament and very, very bad injuries to my wrists, my knees, my, my hip, and those kind of things. So within about six, seven months, I realized that wasn't so fine. And things were unraveling. I, in a lot of therapy I did, I called it the toilet bowl. And I just kept saying, I am in this toilet bowl. And if somebody would just stop flushing the toilet bowl, I'll be okay. I can catch my breath. I will be okay. But somebody just constantly keeps flushing the toilet bowl. So here I am in this cycle of just going downhill in a really fast way. And I kept training because got to stay on track. You know, this is what I knew. My whole world was being an athlete. So that's what I knew. And I, and I kind of hung to two things, my training and my work. If I can keep my training going and keep my work going, nobody will know what's going on with me. Nobody will figure it out. That was my worst fear is that people would see how messed up I was becoming. And it was by fall that I got into some really good therapy. It was actually an attorney's advice that I was headed down a path that I would not return from and that things were really bad. And I got it. I, I, it clicked. And I got into some therapy called EMDR and then started to get MRIs and all the stuff I probably should have done six, seven months earlier and finding out, well, my wrists aren't sprained. I've torn all the ligaments in my wrist. There's nothing holding my wrist. My hip is really badly torn and needs surgery, all these kind of things. I fractured my back, that kind of stuff. And I was one of those people, and, and I'm full on for therapy, but I walked into the therapist and said, so six, I kind of thought in my head, how many sessions is a lot? I'm like, so six or seven sessions and probably be good. And she said, well, everybody's really different and we'll just see. And she had worked with, it's a treatment they use with um, vets and a lot of people that have had really, really bad traumatic experiences. 
And after about a month, I walked in, I said, so how often can I come? Because this is working and I'm so afraid to go back to where I was because I was on that line of no return. Like one more step. And they confirmed this later that had I not come in when I had come in, that maybe I would have had another month before really serious psychiatric problems. But I was so scared that brain of that fine line of not having your brain, you know, and always being somebody who's lived her whole life in control pretty much. So started, started figuring out all the surgeries I was going to have to have. I had a calendar from the beginning of 2010 all the way through the rest to 2010, which was a pre-qualifying year for Paris, to then in the year that Paris is, which is 2011, you also have to do these events to qualify. So they have a pre-qualifying event, because I think it kind of gives them an idea of how many people from each country want to go. And then you have the qualifying events. And so I would walk in with this fold-out calendar to every surgeon I went to and said, well, so let's plan this, all these surgeries. And as I was going simultaneously through therapy, people started to find out what was going on because in the midst of all the orthopedic um, appointments and finding out what surgeries I needed for orthopedics, they found out I had thyroid cancer. And I was gonna put off the cancer, but it was my hip surgeon who said, no, you're not putting off the cancer surgery. You know you have cancer. You, you do that and come back and we'll do your hip later. And I'm like, no, 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 I have this calendar of events. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Thyroid cancer is really slow growing. And it was because of him that I went and had my surgery early. And I planned, planned out a calendar year, just like a good coach <laughs> and athlete. And luckily I went in when I did because my cancer was stage three. So, and then I had to have that treatment. But I was still figuring out when I could train. So I was still on this, this really matters, it matters a lot, I'm going, because I'm fine. And the more therapy I had, and the more the surgery dates started to unfold, people's friends who are in publishing and write books and stuff said, you've got to write a book. And what would you call it? And I said, I don't know, I guess my road to Paris, because it's not like my life has been really easy up to the car accident, a lot of death in my family and hardships. But it was the first time I saw, like, you can lose your brain, like the thing that makes you you. And I could see that I was already changing, um, but I'm like, that's what the book can be called, My Road to Paris. And it's about how I'm gonna take this calendar and I'm going to Paris. And I'm like, and this is how I, you can do it. So I'm gonna have one surgery after another surgery, I'm gonna have the cancer surgery, then I'm gonna have another surgery, I'm gonna get through this summer, and as fast as I can, I'm gonna start training again, and I'm going to Paris. That's what the book is about. And it started to evolve as somebody who had PTSD, because I'm like, oh my God, wow, that's this is really, really hard, because it's such a fine line, and I didn't see it coming. 
I never saw it coming. I always, and I've always known about mental illness. There's some in my family and it's not like I was adverse to it. I talk to homeless people on the street all the time, give them my food all the time, sometimes money, clothing, because I realize you're one step away. Well, I think <laughs> uh, thinking that just the homeless people are the ones with the mental illnesses is, is, is uh, I mean, we, it's a spectrum, right? We're all crazy. Yeah, and it's, and I'm telling you, one step. And for the longest time in therapy, I kept saying, what if, what if I go back to that point? And they kept telling me, you're not going to. You'll, you might come close again, but you won't because you got yourself in here. You made the decision and it was a choice because I used to say, it's not a choice. I have to, if I'm going to Paris, I gotta get my brain back and I have to get my physical abilities back. But it, they, I learned over time that they're choices. I had the choice not to go to therapy. I had the choice not to do the surgeries, and yet I did. Still with the calendar, which makes me laugh now, because I'm sure they must have, sh I'm sure they shook their head every time I walked out of an office going, that girl's looped. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, here, so I have to be in really tip-top shape at these months, and I have to do these qualifiers, but I can kind of move them around a little, and... So how long do you think I can get off crutches? Because then I can have my hand surgery, and then I can have this surgery. And I really pushed them. And I don't, I don't know if you can do that in other towns, but you certainly can do it in Boulder <laughs> <laughs> if you find the right surgeon. And I got a really good team. I got a really good team of orthopedics surgeons. I got a really good endocrinologist. I had really good plastic surgeon do my surgery. I was, I was lucky. I was lucky and grateful. I didn't realize how grateful at the time because I was still in that I'm fine, I'm going to be fine. It's my it's my road to Paris. I'm getting there. I'm still going to go to Paris. And I and through this whole thing I used to say I will not be defined by the car accident. I will not be defined by the car accident. And I've changed. I don't say that anymore because everything that we go through defines us. And sometimes it's an about face and how it's not selfish, but how naive. I was naive. I lived in a world where I thought, and I probably didn't die because of my racing skills, because I stayed really conscious the whole time I was hit, being hit and getting, trying not to fall under the truck and that kind of stuff. So I was doing things that I knew to do to survive. And that's really what I continued to do after the car accident. I knew how to survive. I didn't really know what was happening, but I knew how to survive. So by the end of the summer, I've had um, three or four surgeries. It's, it's, September, it's the end of August. I'm two or three weeks out from one of my hand surgery, wrist surgeries. And I'm at home and the four mile fire hits. And when you live in the mountains, you're pretty conscious of things going on and the fire's behind our house. And I'm calling, Steve's calling back and forth. And I'm like, you better get home. I can't get the cats into the car with one hand. And I've put all the electronics in the middle of the house so we can get those into cars first. And I've made piles of things to take next of whatever left. And he said, I can't, I rode my bike to town. 
So we borrowed somebody's car and got around the roadblocks and came home and there were four of us filling up four cars. We didn't live at home for a month because we had so much smoke damage in the house. We couldn't go in the house. It was professionally cleaned. That was all through that. But I survived that, got through it. We didn't lose our house. So back on track, <laughs> back on track. Yep, the road to Paris, back on track. Yep. So that was the fall of 2010. I started probably indoor training a lot because my hip surgery was in June. My hand surgery was the end of August and they wouldn't do the left hand wrist because the right one didn't work very well. And um, we're back on track. I've done the pre-qualifiers, as many as I could do around the surgeries. And we're starting 2011. So now it's a, it's a year like it is right now, every four years. So we're pre-qualified, pre, pre which kind of means we can pre-register. Still on track, the road to Paris. It's going to be about how you get hit, come back after you know some mental illness a little bit there, all these surgeries, cancer surgery. I'm fine, still training, still relatively fast, but we're not going to break any records anymore. There's just no way. So we're like, that's fine. We'll still like have a great time. They have this pretty wide amount of time that you can do this event. You can do it in 90 hours. 90 hours in five minutes, you're DNF'd. So the beginning of the 11th, 2011 comes around. Still thinking about the book, but I kept having this kind of process of, well, until, I'm, until I go to Paris, I can't write about my road to Paris, you know, my path, my journey to get to Paris. And so it has to be kind of on the back burner. But this, this it would suck if everything I went through was in vain. It, it needs to help people. So 2011 comes, get back on track, doing, getting back into the training. We have to qualify, same year, you still have to do these events. 125 miles, 250, 375. A two, a three, a four, and a six, 375. So 125, 185, 250, 375. We get all the qualifiers done. Around here in Colorado, ours are usually crammed into kind of May, depends on weather, but they're these official events. We do that on track, doing really well, not much therapy anymore. This is gonna be really good. Five, we're, we've got our plane tickets, everything. We've got everything all set up. I'm commuting to work down Boulder Canyon. I live up in the mountains. And the ironic part is the day before I was driving home behind the street sweeper truck and making bad jokes about it going, oh, that's a waste of taxpayer money. It doesn't get rid of the gravel. It just makes all these rows of gravel. I'm like, they should make a truck that gets rid of gravel. <laughs> sure enough, I'm riding down Boulder Canyon. No cars are coming, so I make this sweeping big turn onto Pearl. There are all the rows of gravel. And I'm like, crap, I can't hit them up turning my bike, so I'll hit them perpendicular. But there's like four of them, so I'm like, getting closer and closer to the curb. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm gonna have to jump the curb. Nah, I'm just gonna lay down the bike, that'll work. And my back wheel popped up and I came down right on my hip and I broke my femur. I knew it immediately and took out chunks of flesh out of my arm. I'm lying there, the RTD bus is trying to like get by me. 
probably thinking like, why isn't she getting up off the ground? But I can't move. Two guys come running over. It was almost like a Monty Python because I really took a lot off my arm. And so it's gushing blood. And one guy's kind of looking at me and he's, you could tell he's in kind of a nice outfit like you are. And I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to get it on your shirt, but just get me to the curb. And I knew I wanted so badly for it not to be, but I knew that was it. No more pairs, no more pairs. And mentally, I went to the hospital. I went to the hospital. It was, it was awesome. The paramedic knew me from some TV racing event I'd been on. And uh, we were in the ER room, and you could tell Steve was quite bummed. And there it went. Like, this whole being, this whole motivational goal, 9 to 10, 10 to 11, for two and a half years, wiped, just slate clean. And all my previous surgeons called me while I was in the hospital. I think they thought, if she's going to lose it, this is going to be it. <laughs> this will be it. I thought I was going to lose it. I learned to meditate, and I learned that, all right, it's off the table again. That's funny that, that you learned to meditate at that point, you know? That's yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to... I literally thought I would lose it. I was so worried and um, and had to reevaluate like everything, like everything, because this had been this like carrot, this huge carrot that got me through everything because there it was at the end of that calendar, there it was. And it took a lot of recess, you know, reassessing everything in my life, everything. And um, so it was still, there went the road to Paris in a flash, just in one stupid move, gone. So I made it through the surgery, made it through that recovery again, which it was a long recovery, got back on the trainer. And now we're four years away from Paris, another four years. And the bubble was really burst for a long time, really for a long time. So I started training slowly again, because now this goal is really far out. And I don't have to really do anything for the first couple years, because it's out here. The last two years towards it are really when you really ramp up kind of thing. And I just kind of been through so much that it just kind of knocked the wind out. So now we're into 2012. And we're training kind of normally, but now we're kind of haphazardly training, but training like most people say they train in Boulder and working again and building everything back up again. And, you know, the road to Paris is still kind of back there, but I'm like, you know, now it's a bucket list. Now it's like, now we're going, you know, because I just want it off my list kind of thing, but it's really far out. So it's kind of hard. So we go through the summer and we kind of, we do some events and we decide, all right, we can still go for this R5000 award, which takes four years. Paris, you have to do Paris. You have to do a certain amount of these certain events, 5,000 kilometers of them. You have to do a flesh, which is this 24-hour event. You have to do 1,000K. And so I said, well, let's go do 1,000K somewhere, you know. So we trained for that. 
Because we wanted this, we knew now we're at the beginning of a whole cycle. So we said, well, let's start with something that's, that's really a motivator and we'll do that. So we trained for a thousand kilometer event that I wanted to go to Scotland, but we couldn't get into that one. So we went to Nova Scotia. Me thinking that it would be 60, 65 degrees and maybe some rain because I like that temperature. It was 100 degrees every day. But we still did great. We, we've met some lifelong friends. We got to see all 1,000 kilometers of Nova Scotia, and it kind of kept us on track. So then I went on a vacation with my twin sister um, to the Cape to see our aunt and uncle. And my sister for that, that year had been having some trouble with her hand, losing some muscle and some strength, and they thought maybe she had a pinched nerve, that kind of thing. And when I saw her in August, the end of August, I thought, I think this is something really serious. And I told my aunt and uncle what I thought it was. And they said, no, 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 that's not it. And we came, I came back from that vacation. And on the same weekend, my husband lost, was laid off from a job he'd had for 24 years and my twin sister got her diagnosis. She had ALS. And so the floor just fell out. And I've pretty much lost a family member about every seven years. I lost my dad before I was 20, my mom before I was 30, my older sister in, when I was 40 something. I've lost a family member pretty often. And so before I was 40, my dad died at 42. Never thought I would live very long because I don't have grandparents and my mom, but my parents were dead. So I just crammed things in. I would, I quit my career that I went to school for so I could ride my bike from Florida to Alaska. Cause I'm like, you don't live forever. And in my eyes, that means 40. You know, you live to 40, is, really? <laughs> you know, so you better cram it in. Yeah. So I rock climbed and I mountain climbed and I ice climbed and I raced my bike and, and I still worked. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't sh shrugging off my responsibilities. It's just, I started, I had, and they weren't even bucket lists. They were like, somebody said, you want to ride your bike to Alaska? Yeah. Okay. I'll just quit my job, my career, you know, kind of thing. And so it's not like I've lived this great life. I have lived a great life. It's not like I lived this life that I thought I would be around forever, like there will be time. So I always had it in my head, well, you don't want to be that person that waits until they retire and they're in a Winnebago going across the country, but they die first. So I'm like, well, you should do what you want to do first. <laughs> and then you can always work till you die. <laughs> so I kind of always lived that kind of life. and. Like when I got our, when we got our dogs, I got married, then we got dogs, bought a house. People who knew me before were like, I can't believe you settled down. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, you can always sell a house. And my husband likes to do the things I do. And I love my dogs. I wanted this, I wanted a Rhodesian Ridgeback for 20 years. So then I, now I have two. And so I'm like, well, you know, that's kind of just a little bit of a change kind of thing, but I'll still do these fun things. And after I turned, I remember when I turned 41, I was like, huh, 
maybe I'm going to live past 40, <laughs> past what my dad died. I'm like, this is good then. And I think it kind of changed me a little bit. Like, well, I can settle down and slow down a little bit and maybe I don't have to cram in everything. And then when my sister got the diagnosis, I remember thinking, that's a three to five year prognosis. And so if I haven't learned anything from all the family members dying and some really, really close friends, what have I learned? And I've learned, I've learned you be with them. How can you, how can you kind of look into the future, be able to look back and live that, live your life with no regrets? And so I was like, all right, I'm going to help support her and I'm going to start visiting her. She lived in Sarasota, so not an easy flight from Denver. And I'm going to go see her all the time. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help support her and I, I'm going to go see her all the time. And so that's what I started doing in the beginning. So she got the diagnosis the beginning of September. I went in October. I went in December. I went in February for our birthday. I went in April. I just started going all the time. And sometimes I would just cram my work weeks because I worked for myself. So I would go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday maybe. I would take the red eye, although I learned not to like the red eye. The 5 a.m. flight's way better. Not everybody on the flight sleeps. <laughs> so that's what I started doing. And Steve and I started helping her out financially, and I just started being there, like really being with her. And she decided to live her life as if she wasn't going to die and said, I'm going to beat this. And so we started looking into stem cell research. And you can't do it in the United States. So we did medical tourism, go to Mexico with her stem cells. So there is a stem cell lab in Texas that the governor has made sure the FDA doesn't shut down. So you can grow your stem cells there. I don't know how they get into Mexico, I don't care. And we tried that the first, so in 2013, last year, um, we helped her get this procedure done. And then we went in June, the end of May, June to Mexico. And it helped turn some things around. She had more energy. She also had breast cancer. Right after she was diagnosed with ALS, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So she had that treatment and a mastectomy, double. And so we went to Mexico and the first treatment, and we've done tons of research. For a, year, for a year, we've done research. And because she had the breast cancer, she couldn't get into any clinical trials, none. And the only drug available that kind of buys people about three months of time is $1,000 a month at a discount. So she didn't want to do it because she was losing everything. So in a two and a half year period, I watched her lose everything lose her income, lose, as she's losing her physical abilities, she was losing her income, her savings, her retirement, everything, absolutely everything. And there were some phenomenal parallels to when the realization that my hand surgery didn't work and that 
I would have to learn to use my hands differently again. They don't bend certain ways. Um, and everything I do is my hands. I coach mountain biking and cycling. I work in a gym. So on a higher, on a, on a worse level, she was losing all these things that I had been losing after the car accident. Like kind of being naive about life or losing your savings account because people don't always have the best insurance. And, but she had it all. She had set up her whole life the way we're taught to set up your life. Have a year of income, have a retirement going, have a good job. And she was losing it all. And it was really, really hard to watch. Um, in July of 2013, we went back to and did a second round of stem cell therapy in Mexico, but there was no change after that. And then in, at the end of August, beginning of September, she traveled north. Her boyfriend, who was helping take care of her, um, she started to rent out her house. And then her boyfriend started to help take care of her a little bit, but he worked full time, so that was hard for him. So she went to live with another sister for a little while, a little while, um, in the fall of 2013. And I just, she had just asked me the last two weeks of August to go to Cape Cod so she could go see my aunt and uncle and have a trip. And she still was believing that she would beat this. And I came back the end of August. Steve and I, on the 9th and 10th, rode our bikes. It started pouring raining on the 11th. On the 12th, we took our dog, because she had a foot injury, to see a, a specialist in Wheat Ridge, Denver. It was still pouring, and so we were like, it's got to stop pouring or we're going to have a flash flood. We had a flash flood in 2011 after the fires. It took out our driveway, but we repaired it. Wednesday, Steve called in to work. I was working from home. Steve called in to work. No, he went to work Wednesday. And I called him in the afternoon and I said, the creek's getting really high, you should get home. He got home just before dark. We moved two of three cars, the oldest cars we moved, and watched our driveway culvert. We lost the culvert. And I was texting some people that had that had helped restore our driveway the year before and had helped us in the fire. And I said, ah, we just lost the driveway. They said, no worries, we'll see you on Friday. We'll just bring up the track hoe and fix it again. I'm like, okay, thanks. Steve and I knew things were bad. The creek, which we have this little draw, it's not anything like that, um, became a raging torrent. And we stayed awake Wednesday night and then we started to try to save things on Thursday, saving anything we could. We were cutting the electrical lines off our house because it was ripping the conduit off our house. Um, I pulled everything out of my car, moved it closer up higher to our house. It didn't work. And we just kept setting the bar higher and higher. So we're like, well, this will never happen, but if the creek reaches your car, then we'll do this. And then we were like, okay, the last absolute thing, you know, you just kept setting things higher and higher and higher. If this happens, we'll do this. 
if this happens, but this is unimaginable, then we'll do this. And we were in contact and had walkie-talkies going with neighbors. And I didn't know this, but another neighbor of mine who was stuck in town and her family was up near us, she stayed in touch with Lynn only because she knew that Lynn had been diagnosed and was really sick and said, well, what can I do? I can't do anything down here. And now I have no communication with them up there. What can I do to help? And so she took it upon herself to stay in touch with Lynn and keep her calm. And then by Thursday, about an hour after dark, the water reached our yard. So it, it had to go about 100 feet wide and 12 feet higher to hit our house. And we climbed out the back window. And we went to a neighbor's second house that was higher away from the river, now a raging river, with pieces of people's houses floating by and stuff. And went to a house that had a draw behind it, not thinking. We were so fixated on the river, we weren't thinking about the hillside. And about the time we all started to kind of get settled in, I was, we were on the floor sleeping. I'd just fallen asleep. The house got hit by the mudslide. To make a shorter, a longer story shorter, um, pretty much as buried as I was in the rocks, the size of the rocks that were on me, I, and I kind of looked at, Steve was not buried. Um, and if, if it had not been that I had been shoved across the house to a door, the outside door, Steve kicked it open because the mud was rising on me and the neighbor. And um, I figured, no, I knew nobody was coming. When I lived in Oregon, I worked a little bit of search and rescue. I knew nobody could come. I knew it was up to us, and I knew it was bad. So I figured, this is it. And all I could think was, I made it through the car accident. I made it through PTSD. And this is what's going to take me out? <laughs> and it, it kind of came full circle. It wasn't like I thought of my whole life. I thought of the, what I'd made it through the last four years. And I was like, and this is how I'm going to die. And what I didn't realize, I'd been, I thought I was thinking all of this. And I said it out loud. And Steve said, this is not how you're going to die. And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> you can't get the boulders off me. There's no way. We're done. This is done. Go find Kayla. And I begged him, begged him to find the dog because I had hung on to her while I was being buried. So I knew she was somewhere close. And he handed her to me dead. And just lifeless on the pile of rocks right here. And she's really kind of an innocent dog. And I realized that she had mud in her mouth. So I was just cleaning off her face and taking mud out of her mouth. And then I realized that she had had mud down her, in her mouth. So I just started to blow into her mouth. And her eyes moved a little bit. And Steve, everybody's screaming at this point because it's chaos. The whole thing is chaos. And Steve kept saying, you've got to help me dig. You have to dig. And so I put Kayla down just figuring I would be the last thing she saw before she died and started digging. And so as the night unfolded and Steve got me out, 
and then we started to dig another neighbor out, it became obvious that we weren't doing it fast enough. So I ran to an, I ran along a mountainside to go get help. And I found the dogs, both alive, which it didn't register in my head kind of thing. And brought back help. This is at what, like four in the morning, three in the morning? Yeah, it's like three, probably Pitch three, black, four in the morning. Pitch black. That. What's really bizarre, and, and that I've studied this, I took a class a couple years ago at Stanford University about um, your environment and what the body does in stressful situations. And Steve and I kept talking about how we're in a pitch dark house. He's standing over me and we can both see as if it's daylight because you have hormones and adrenaline that allow your body in a life or flight situation to see. And if you talk to first responders and stuff, people who are in tornadoes and that kind of stuff, they'll tell you they could see. It's just like, like this dark, not bright, bright, like sunny day, like dusk, but you can see, That's you can wild. see plain as day. And um, some pretty phenomenal things happen when you are gonna die and you don't die. But um, amazingly enough, found the dogs, brought help back, who helped start digging the other neighbor out. And probably about 40, 45 minutes later, got him out got our backpacks because we all live with preparedness backpacks now and um, trekked on the same way I had gone to run for help and um, really the lesson from almost dying in that situation was all right I have these survival skills I probably are always had them because of I'm, that's a personality I have from bike racing but okay the last four years have prepared me for this and the more and more had some more therapy after that to make sure that I was in touch base with reality I was very very guilty for a long time that I had um, killed my pets and for a long time I kept thinking maybe they are dead and I'm I've lost it a little bit maybe because I would look at them and go, nah, I don't think they survived. And then I'm like, ah, maybe it's time to go to therapy because they are right here and you're not, brain isn't playing tricks on you. They are here kind of thing. And I think the guilt came from my having such a strong personality. We had different places we could have gone, but the outcome of what happened might've been very, very different. We might've lost people without without Steve not being buried or me being able to go run for help. So there, are, you kind of have to realize, I'm not somebody that believes anymore in faith, like we have a path, but I believe we have a path, but we can change that path too, kind of thing. So things happen. And the months afterwards of putting back all the property which took 16 months to put it and not everything is back the way it was um, a lot of labor 20 to 40 hours a week of working around your house and trying to work your job and trying to have a life so broken when you talk about I had hiking. fractured my back and broken some ribs <laughs> and broken some knuckles 
small adrenaline. But adrenaline. I didn't realize for a couple of days really that something was really bad because I went to roll out of bed and I was like, uh oh, I've really hurt my back. And so recovering again. But now everything, the cycling is like off the table at this point. And really the two main things are we've got to go to these county meetings, FEMA meetings, flood recovery meetings, and they were constant. We have to figure out how to get excavators here. We have to put our property back. And, and I also need to visit my sister. And work sort of took a back, kind of a back burner for a while. And kind of moving forward to things got to a place where we could start help volunteering by December. So helping the community and helping other friends that were still in a worse situation kind of thing. And starting to realize, um, so this is the fall now of 2013. And Christmas time, I went to visit Lynn. Something, things that were at home good enough that could leave, work was stable enough. And um, I guess it was 2014. It was 2014 we did the stem cell stuff, really. And by the fall, Lynn's um, symptoms really progressed. And throughout the whole summer, I'm trying to get back on track and not be afraid of where I live because it's my property. You just, we're not wealthy. We can't even afford rent in Boulder. We live where we live, but we also have this really tight-knit community. Um, Which mountain town are you in? Salina. Oh, we live up right. four mile. Okay. So we, I started to realize in five years, each thing that happened to me was preparing me for a worse thing. And that, in the end, would be losing my sister, my twin sister, my kind of everything person, the person who we had a connection of friends and the same school and the same classes and the same music. Um, and it was as if our personalities, we joked around that she was the butterfly and I was the bee. If you think about those two things, that fits our personalities. She's like the flower child and I'm like the, no, we stay rigid on the calendar path. <laughs> life more, more like life is like this. <laughs> She's like, run around naked and twirly girl. <laughs> I'm like, you don't do that. <laughs> and there were times I would pick a flight four days out from flying. I would just go. And through therapy, I learned that that was okay to do. Because in the end, it's really just money. Anything else can come, you can get it back. And I was able to be there right when she died. She was not very um, uh, cohesive, coherent, coherent um, in the end. And we, she loved um, Christmas, and it was the beginning of December, so we played Christmas music. So we had beach 
waves on one iPad going and then Christmas music on the other iPad going. And here we are, a pair of year, 2015. Steve and I started riding our bike again in January after having no base the last couple of years. And now it's not even my road to Paris. It's just the road to Paris. And it's just the journey. And now I just want to go. Just let me go and ride my bike. Let me wave to the French people. <laughs> let me see 5,000 other people riding their bike too. Because getting there has been the battle. Riding 1,200 kilometers will probably seem easy, not easy, <laughs> but it, it's getting there and how many things can go wrong or go right. And it's a path and it's a journey and the road to Paris is just going. If somebody asked if I had a favorite anything anymore, I'd say no. Because if you have a favorite something or you put such high expectations onto something, I think you also have to be prepared for the other side of that coin, which is total defeat or disaster or it doesn't happen. And I know part of my sister's only, she's been dead now six months. So I have a my mood flips and flops. Like some days I'm like, yeah, let's go. I'm really pumped up. And other days I'm like, yeah, if I get there, good. And it's life. My last five years and also my whole life, but the last five years have been life. Life happens. And I think setting goals, I'm a coach. I think people have to set goals. You have to have a carrot. You have to have a goal. It's, we're human. We, it keeps us moving forward. But I also think you really have to roll with all the change and the disasters and deaths and the things that can just totally change an expectation. And so it's almost comical to have started the road to Paris going, yep, I'm going to try to break the women's record <laughs> and go, Please let me just get on that start line. <laughs> just give me a chance. I want a chance. And yet, more than likely, where I am now is probably more indicative of the population of people who just set a goal and want to go do something. And maybe it's less selfish or more realistic, less naive, that's for sure. Because um, I think so many things in life are not if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. And so Dateline contacted us a couple months ago. They were, and they're not the first show like that to contact us. We've made no money from the disasters. And I turned them down for two reasons, Steve and I. And one was, there are some people in the community that aren't, aren't ready to hear the story or see it again in national news. 
They're, they want to just leave us alone. And I want those people to be part of my life for a long time. So I don't want to upset what they, their healing process. And the other thing is, it goes back to, I don't want this to define my life. And yet, I won't say that anymore because all of these things define our lives. I am defined by the car accident. I am defined by almost being hospitalized with PTSD. I am defined by the last five years. I am defined by that. I am a different person. I'm not the person I was five years ago, and I won't ever be. And you have to, at some point, let that go, and you bring parts of that with you. And I hope I bring good parts with me, and some days, not so good parts. And I think that Dateline contact me in 10 years and say, how did that change your life? Did it change you for the better? Because then let me show you the person I've become or the person I still want to become. Not that night. That night prepared me for something that was even almost losing my husband, my dogs, my neighbors, my family, my whole being naive of living in the mountains in a canyon that has defined me, but it also prepared me for the thing that seems the worst in the world right now, which is to have lost my twin sister. And so maybe that's going to prepare me for even something worse. And what is worse? I don't know. It's just a definition, I think. And so the road to Paris has so many twists and turns, and it's not there. And I hope, I hope I finish Paris, <laughs> but I don't have that expectation of, yeah, I'm going. I have an expectation of I'm going, I'm training for it, I'm hoping to go, but I know that maybe it won't happen. And maybe that's what the journey is. I'm hoping the journey is that I go and I see things through a whole different set of eyes instead of trying to blast down the road and hurry, hurry, hurry like my racing career was. I hope it'll be, hi, how are you? And thank you for being out here with water at two in the morning. And wow, that person's really struggling. I know what they're going through. Or wow, this is really far harder than I ever thought it would be kind of thing. So, it, it'll be interesting when the road to Paris, when I get to Paris, <laughs> because it's been a journey that I didn't see coming in any, any sense of the word, not at all, not at all, so. My life is so boring and pathetic. But aren't you so much more appreciative? Like, I call, every time I talk to you, I'm like, wow, things are going so well. <laughs> I don't have cancer. I haven't been hit by a truck recently. <laughs> My house is still standing. But you know, it's relative. A friend came in and was helping. I took like six weeks off work because it became apparent. One, we were having looters in the area. Looters? <laughs> My therapist said <laughs> I should take flood. a year off work. Well, yeah, so after the flood, I took some time off to dig and a friend kept calling that I had known in Oregon and he used to work for the military and 
he kept bugging, it was almost bugging me, and I'm, I kept ignoring. I'd have to run up the hillside to get cell phone reception because we didn't have any infrastructure. And he came and he stayed for uh, three or five weeks till we, we had everything, all infrastructure. We were pouring buckets of water in the toilets to make them flush. He was, we were boiling water. It was all sorts of things. And we were, he was helping me rebuild a rock wall. And he has this really funny <laughs> kind of laugh. And he starts laughing and I'm like, and why do you think this is funny? Because you look around, it was horrible. And he goes, well, there's no sniper fire. And I go, are you kidding me? You were comparing my life to a war zone? And he looks up and he goes, <laughs> look around. It looks like a war zone. He's somebody who would be flown in with the military to help put back infrastructure like in Turkey after an earthquake. Yeah. So he's looking around and he goes, two things in your favor. <laughs> I'm like, and they are? He goes, nobody's shooting at you and you have no funerals to go to. He said, they're the two things in communities that slow down any kind of progress. And I was like, okay, yep, all right. And from the first weekend after we were life evacuated out on a helicopter, getting dogs on a helicopter, not fun. The amount of volunteers that showed up constantly. So the Mormons, the Baptists, the Episcopalians gave us a grant. We all bought trees. The Catholics gave us gas cards and Safeway cards. I'm sure the Buddhists were praying for us, for, for probably everybody. The amount of people that just showed up on your doorstep kept you going. Our friends who just happened, a lot of them who were helping us excavate, happened to be Jehovah Witnesses. We housed our excavator because after the first few days, I found out he was sleeping on a cot in the business. And I go, what do you mean you're sleeping in a cot? He goes, well, there's no available hotels anywhere. And I go, well, you're not driving down to Broomfield and sleeping on a cot. You're going to stay here because I can feed you and you have a warm bed and you don't have to drive places. I am telling you in more ways than one, Steve and I look back to this situation of having this person who must have, must have listened to the mudslide story 500 times if he didn't hear it 100 times. It had to have been constant. We had a sit down meal every night after dark Three of us sat down, ate a meal, talked, and I think it saved our butts because it was structure. And then every weekend, 20, 30, however many volunteers were on your doorstep. What are we working on this weekend? And I had about 30 Mormons standing along our rock wall. So the mud came up over our wall and you could just walk out our front door and just keep walking. Our whole entire yard from our doorstep on was buried. Our garage was buried. It took us three weeks just to get to the door to get into the garage to see what happened in the garage. We lost everything. 30 years of antique bike parts and everything. 
And I said, well, you're standing on some rocks. And I said, that's a rock wall. The excavator's gonna come in with a hoe and, he, and I, I need a space so he doesn't hit the rock wall because it's holding up our, our yard. And they said, can you tell us how deep that is? And there's like four people standing on the wall and I go, 10, 12 feet high? They go, okay. Put a left-handed person on one end, a right-handed person on the other, and dug a trench. Never said anything, dug a trench. Two other people showed up, and I said, well, our well is buried. Yeah, and they sure. said, can you kind of tell us where it is? And I go, I don't know, like in this area. Steve goes, <laughs> and he picks up this orange cone, and he goes, bam, it's right there. I'm like, yeah, whatever, and I walked off. The two people are like, he's crazy, but we'll just dig for a while and just make him happy. Sure enough, like five feet down in a pile of debris, there's our well. They found the well. Destroyed, but they found the well. So we learned really quickly to say please and thank you. Yep, this is way bigger than us. We don't know where to start. We need so much help. Yes, please. And we learn not to feel guilty about it. And then when our time kind of started to get, our turn kind of came up, we started to volunteer to other people that were behind us. And that's what we did for four months. Just constant helping dig out anything, clean things. And I always said, the other side of disaster is humanity. And I was someone that kind of didn't really like, I liked people, but I liked my people. <laughs> you know, I, it wasn't like I was an overly friendly person. I would say hi, but if you knew me, I was like the bubbly, charismatic person. And I learned a lot about people and volunteering and not, and we would always volunteer, but when it suited us, when we had time for it. And we learned to volunteer when you were dog tired and you needed to do something else. But these people needed something more. So you learned. And that's, these people spent six months doing that. All their free time helping people they knew nothing about. Nothing about. It was cool. Don't want to do it again, but it was cool. And... The world is full of some really, really, really cool people. And I live in Boulder, and I'm white. I don't live in Nepal, or Haiti, or New Orleans for that matter. And so I'm fortunate and very grateful. So for all the, I can say Boulder can be pretentious, there's a phenomenally awesome side to Boulder and the surrounding communities and all the help. And a lot of people poured in from other states, Nebraska and Oklahoma, a lot of people from Oklahoma and Nebraska. A lot of the excavators were from um, Oklahoma, Kansas. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing. And so it's easy to say you can be appreciative because you weren't hit by a car, you don't have cancer. But everybody has something, a dark, Yeah, my issues dark, are totally different than your issues. They're, yeah, you know. we all have something, you know, 
a dark side somewhere, a sad side, a, a worry side, or, um, and I find it relative. Like even people would say, oh, but I didn't live, I didn't have what happened in your life. And I'm like, yeah, but it's relative. And I remember after the car accident, I said to a friend, I feel like I'm a boxer. How many, I keep getting knocked down. How many times do you keep getting up? And she goes, as many times as it takes. And I've always kind of, I've always had a quote tagline on my, I used to have it on my email, quitting is not an option. And then I kind of switched it to a while for quitting is not my option because I thought, well, it's not really fair for me to say somebody else can't quit. But you do, you get up as many times for whatever reason, for how, whatever knocks you down, I think. And somebody always has it worse. I'd have to say the last five years have really sucked. But there's been really good things. And I got to share life with my sister. I got to be born. I got to be conceived with her. I mean, if you want to take it back to that, I mean, that's kind of incredible if you really look at it. And then I shared a whole life with somebody that we don't, that even my husband doesn't share with me. And so that's pretty powerful, I think. And that's when I'm really bummed, I try to think about is, wow, that's kind of really special, you know, to have that connection with somebody. And I wouldn't trade all the loss that I've had. I, I wouldn't trade it for not loving kind of thing. When I was thinking about what are my favorite things, I thought, I don't have any favorite things. And then I thought, well, you do. You're just afraid to say what might be favorite because you might lose it kind of thing. But, you know, I think to love is to loss, like they say, to each each really bad thing maybe helps us through something else and maybe we become more balanced so you know Becca's helping me transfer Lynn's website into my website I saw that we're working on it if I would just send her the data (laughs) and Lynn has a book and a month of Sundays, which is really interesting because after I rode my bike from Florida to Alaska, my journal was called 100 Sundays. Because I'm like, this is like a Sunday. You don't have anything that's planned. You're kind of out with God and nature and whatever you believe in. And so when she told me the name of her book, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, that connection kind of thing. So I might try to talk to Kendall about keeping transferring it to me but I don't know if I really want to do it or I don't know it'd be a shame she really pushed to get it published and she self-published so it would be a shame not to have it but it's one more thing it's hard it's going through her stuff has been a lot harder like I just go "Eh, I'm not gonna look at her website I can't do that and I have like probably at least a hundred voicemails and sometimes I just I saved all her voicemails for two and a half years and so I, sometimes I just listen to them one after, sometimes one, one, sometimes like 10. One thing you learn, save somebody's message. If somebody's important to you, parent, that kind of thing, because you learn when people die, like you don't remember what they, 
I had one tape of my mom. We were on this. You guys aren't old enough. There was this thing. It's kind of like Dateline. It was PM Magazine. And my mom was interviewed on it. That went with the flood. That was in the garage. Um, but I had my dad on some old, really old, from the 70s. Like, you can still take them to Mike's, and Mike's camera can not be, it's before VH. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, like, They're the like tracks. this big, yeah. big things. And my dad taught a lot. And so when I heard one of his tapes, I'm like, oh, my gosh, his accent is, we were born in Australia. He's Australian. I'm like, wow, his accent's really thick. Because <laughs> you don't remember. So. So hopefully that's kind of what you wanted, and it's kind of a long story, and it's a long five years. Don't you think it's going to help people? Some people out there are going to, it's going to resonate with them and help them. Yes.